Have you ever longed to meet someone you greatly admired from media? But when you actually met them, you were extremely disillusioned by their values, or seeming lack of values. You were more or less greatly disappointed. How about Michael Moore? Or less? I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my left, watching America. But first, the news. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. You were asking for an interview in an audience with Roger, and you were turned down every time? Every time. Every time. Every time. Every time. Every time. Every time. Uh, we, we wrote, we phoned, we faxed, uh, we tried every means available, but we couldn't get him to respond. This is the guy who wants the entire world to be able to open their doors to him, and he's not opening his doors to anyone when it comes to doing interviews with him. Michael's security harassed my cameraman and refused to let him plug into the soundboard to get clear audio, despite the fact other cameramen are doing the same thing. I'm starting to think Michael Moore doesn't want us to make this film. Debbie Melnick, welcome to the program. It's wonderful to have you on Watching America. Thank you very much, Alan. Uh, the thing I want to tell you is, is a little biographical, but uh, you reigned significantly from two experiences. The first of which is that I, uh, like yourself, uh, I'm involved in film. I happen to be a university film professor, and I've also taught courses in documentary filmmaking. So, you know, you start out with the Lumiere brothers, uh, you know, workers leaving a factory, and then you eventually go into the John Grierson School of Documentary and the uh, uh, Canadian Film Board, etc. And you make your way through to more contemporary stuff. And invariably, students have always wanted to see Roger and me with our, our respected director of sort, at least in theory, uh, Michael Moore. So I show Roger and me, and then after that, I show your film that you directed with Rick Kane, uh, Manufacturing Descent. And it's very curious to see the response I get from students. I, I, I use it not to necessarily be a downer on Michael Moore, other than to say, look, there's more than one perspective on something, and whoever has the ability to edit has ultimately the opportunity to play God to an extent and to distort. And I really try and show back-to-back uh, -back your film with, with Michael Moore's Roger and me preceding it to awaken within students a, a healthy skepticism that not everything that is presented is necessarily as it is. In that regard alone, you have performed a great service for those of us in cinema who are willing, who instruct and teach film to be able to show your documentary, and I want to thank you for that. How did it come about that you decided to do a film on Michael Moore? Well, we had actually just finished doing a film about Conrad Black, um, who is uh, the proprietor of the Daily Telegraph um, the national, in England, the National Post in Canada. He had numerous newspapers around the world, and uh, 
we really didn't like doing this documentary about him. He was kind of a horrible person, and that, while we were doing it, he was charged with tax fraud, um, stealing millions of dollars from his company, money laundering, and so he ended up going to jail. And we thought, why don't we do a movie about someone we actually like, like Michael Moore, whom we respect. So we started down this path, um, but... The more research we started to do and the more people we spoke with, the more we realized that everything wasn't quite what it seems. And we thought, okay, and we talked to our um, commissioning editors and we said, well, this is kind of what we found out. Do we really want to go down this path or do you, will you still fund us if we go down this other path and show the other side of Michael Moore and his films and basically that he really... Uh, he takes advantage, he sort of takes advantage of things in his films, he, he doesn't quite, not everything as a, is as it seems. And so... Um, let let me say said, it, uh, yeah, let, let me just come out and say, uh, unscrupulous. Yeah, unscrupulous. Um, and, and so they said, whatever you find out, just put it in your film. So we thought, okay, we, we're, we're okay with that. So we went ahead with it, and, and um, I think once we started to do the research on the Mother Jones section of the film, when he was editor of Mother Jones, we started to hear all these conflicting stories uh, around why he was fired. And he had said it was because he had refused to print an, an article about Nicaragua that, that the um, publisher disagreed with. But the more people we spoke to, they said it really wasn't that. He couldn't make the deadlines, and he couldn't work with the staff. Um, it had nothing to do with the red herrings that Michael threw to the press and, you know, sort of ran Mother Jones' name through the mud. So, you know, we just started to do an exploration of Michael Moore's, quote, truthiness, if you, if you will. <laughs> well, in the, in the creation of this film, uh, it is progressive, uh, uh, going and delving quite deeply into his persona, his, uh, to some extent, his, his technique, if you will, uh, method of, of functioning in various veins in different arenas uh, throughout his early career. Now, I want to point out that the film is on YouTube. Uh, right now, it has had 236,000 people view it. Uh, are you happy with it being on YouTube, or would you rather people didn't have access to it that way? Which uh, are you? Which film are you talking about? Uh, Manufacturing Descent. Actually, I wasn't uh, aware that it was on YouTube, and uh, quite frankly, in the end, um, yeah, there has been a lot of. There are other people showing our film, which they don't really have the rights to. We had sold it at one point um, to Liberation Media, okay. and they went bankrupt. And then, you know, so <laughs> basically it's out there everywhere. So we're not getting money from any of this anyway. So, hey, if it's on YouTube, fine. That means the people who are showing the film aren't getting the money, who never paid us. So that's fine. <laughs> okay. All right, then. Okay. Uh, well, the reason I, I mention that is because uh, it, it, is, it is, in my estimation, a wonderful documentary. So let's go through it chronologically, if we can, about different things that happen. You begin the film uh, showing the Baghdad War, and you say March 19th, 2003. And then you allude to the fact that just a few days later, four days later, on the 23rd, uh, you have the 75th Academy Awards. And there's Michael in all his glory, coming out with his wife and smiling and waving to the crowds and what have you. And then you cut to the acceptance speech that he gave at the Academy Awards for winning uh, for Roger and me, his uh, Academy. And he says, we live in fictitious times. 
The irony cannot be lost on anyone who follows the remainder of the film because so much of what he produces has, well, a considerable amount of a fictitious nature to it. Um, what made you decide to start with that clip? Because that, I believe that that was, uh, well, basically that was the peak of his career. Um, and I still believe that is still the peak of his career because he won an Oscar. He'd always wanted to win an Oscar. He wanted to win it for Roger and me. And I also really loved that speech at the Academy Awards. I thought right on, you're there. Uh, speaking truth to power, so to speak, uh, and and talking about George Bush and 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 the Iraq War, and I thought that was very courageous of him to do that um, because there were a lot of boos in the audience. But he went out there and and he said what had to be said, and I I totally agreed with that. So I actually applaud him for that, and and that's why I started with that. And the Oscar goes to Bowling for Columbine. This is the first Academy Award and nomination for Michael Moore and Michael Donovan. I've invited uh, my fellow documentary nominees on the stage with us. They are here. They are here in solidarity with me because we like nonfiction. We like nonfiction and we live in fictitious times. We live in a time where we have fictitious ele election results that elects a fictitious president. We are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. And any time you've got the Pope and the Dixie Chicks against you, your time is up. One of the things that has been disclosed, at least by some of the fellow nominees whom were invited up with Michael Moore, he wins, he knows he's won the award, and he invites the other persons who had been nominees to come up with him. And then he goes into this monologue. Some people have said that that was a foul because they did not anticipate that he was going to go into a political, uh, if you will, sermon of a sort, and they felt violated. Do you think that that's a reasonable complaint on their part? I think it is a reasonable complaint, um, and I know that he said that he did this on the spur of the moment, um, but later I found out that he actually, uh, when he was at the... Flint Film Festival in Traverse City, he did sort of say it was all sort of planned and everything. So if it was planned, then he should have told them what he was going to do and, you know, allowed them to decide, do I want to come up there and be a part of this or not? Because, yeah, they, they were like deer caught in the headlights. So you go to uh, interview him and your first encounter in the film, is at least, uh, is in Toronto for his promotion of Fahrenheit 9-11. And you approach him and you say, will you be willing to participate in the interview? And he hums and haws a little bit. And his basic uh, excuse is, well, right now I'm working on this film, but I love Canadians uh, in a kind of a you know, semi-patronizing way. And they have, well, we can do it later. Were you anticipating that he would eventually come and speak to you later? Or did you at that moment even sense that he was trying to dodge you? Um I actually did think he was going to come around to doing the interview later. I mean, I guess I was being naive. Um, but yes, I think it's because we had, uh, I believe he knew our agent, and I, you know, dropped his name and I said, oh, yeah, we, we would like to do an interview, and, and he's working with us. And, you know, I'd said this to his lawyer, um, and we thought, yeah, it will, well, you know, it'll come around. Nothing, and there would be no reason for him not to do the interview with us because we're both coming from the left. So I thought, 
Yeah, why not? So yeah, at that point, I did think that we were going to get an interview. Now, Michael Moore uh, frequently has alluded to the fact that, at least as he claimed, that he grew up in Flint, Michigan. But the actual fact was he actually grew up in Davison, Michigan, which is adjacent to it. Is that correct? That is correct. It's a suburb of around 20 minutes from Flint, uh, more affluent, not nearly as run down as Flint. What was his first aspirations or indications that he'd want to become uh, known for writing and essays and things of that nature? Did he do anything locally in his hometown? Uh, well, he did run for the school board in his hometown. So, uh, you know, so you knew that he was politically motivated as a young kid. I mean, I think it was when he was, I believe it was when he was 16, he was elected to the school board. Uh, and he also ran a, a school, and he also ran a newspaper. So um, I'm trying to think of what else. I don't think the aspirations, I don't think the grandiose aspirations were there. Okay, so that came perhaps later in San Francisco because he eventually goes uh, and he works for Mother Jones. And as you've indicated uh, uh, elsewhere and earlier, uh, he seemed to be, ironically, because he would later have a tour called the Slacker Tour, but he seemed to be a bit of a slacker. He he wasn't really honoring of deadlines and things that most journalists would be. And so he was uh, independent and out of his independence, he came a certain degree of paranoia. Is that fair to say? Um, I, I'm not sure out of that would come the paranoia. I don't know if that was there long before that. I have no idea where that came from, but there's definitely a tinge of paranoia there that we found after discussing, talking with people who had worked with him. So he sues Mother Jones, uh, and he says that he's, you know, he was fired and let go. Uh, at the time, there was the whole Nicaragua Santanista thing going on. Uh, and you actually spoke to editors and people who worked at Mother Jones at the time. What was the impression they left you with? They left me with the impression that he just made up a story to make himself look good as to why he was fired, and he held press conferences and and made Mother Jones look bad. And, and the people who worked there said no. In fact, that was nothing to do with the fact that he was fired. Um, the Nicaragua story, he just couldn't make deadlines. A couple of them also alluded to the fact that he didn't, I guess, you know, Mother Jones, it was 1960s, so people there would smoke pot, and he didn't like that. He was kind of very straight in that way. He, he, he did not agree with the fact that, that uh, many of the, or some of the employees were pot smokers. Okay, so he settles for $58,000, all right, which was his settlement. But thereafter, he is very much filled with anxiety because he doesn't have gainful employment. Uh, He doesn't know what to do. And then finally, he contacts a man called Kevin Rafferty, who is a documentary filmmaker himself. And in 1986, this seems to be a pivotal moment, he starts to work on a white supremacist film with the title Blood in the Face. And rather than being off-camera... And being, well, you know, receding as many journalists or documentary filmmakers would prefer to be, he puts himself on camera, starting to interview various personalities. And is it fair to say that he becomes a little bit enamored with himself? Yes, I, I, I think after he sees uh, the result of this, I do believe he does become enamored with himself. And would you say that that was the key moment when he started to twig the idea that, hey, this might be a pipeline to money for me? Yeah, 
I, I think that is a. I think uh, you're right about that. But remember, he wasn't the uh, director of Blood in the Face. That was Kevin Rafferty, along with Anne Boleyn and James Ridgway. Kevin just asked him to do the interviews, so he was on camera doing the interviews. In 1989, you're at the Toronto International Festival, and uh, and he says, amongst other things, he says, "I, I don't like documentaries," and then he's, he's speaking primarily of Roger and me. And uh, one of his chief critics was Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, who didn't like him at any point. Uh, Some other side thing I'd like to share with you is we recently interviewed Larry Elder, and he had, just prior to you, tried to do a series of uh, interviews with uh, Michael Moore, and Moore declined. In fact, he had to do kind of almost a guerrilla on the street interview. At the time that you went into this documentary, were you aware that Michael Moore had dodged Larry Elder? I was aware that were other right, what I considered more um, right-wing people trying to do films. I only only discovered this once we were in Flint and started to do our own research. When we first started, we didn't know that. But I did hear that Larry Elder had tried to do a story on him. And again, I thought, well, because they're coming from a different direction, you know, of course, he's not going to talk to them, but he will talk to us. Let me play that clip right now. Welcome, Larry, to the program. Alan, thank you so much for having me. In 2005, you made a documentary called Michael and Me, right. uh, which is a play off the original um, documentary that Michael Moore made, Roger and Me, uh, in which he avoided you. Later on, in 2007, there was a, a, another documentary made called Manufacturing Descent, what is your position on Michael Moore now, and did he ever at any point make any overture to have contact with you? Uh, well, the reason I sort of was peeved that he didn't come on my show is that he, that he said publicly, I'll debate anywhere, anytime over the issue of guns. So we contacted him, and initially his office appeared to be receptive, and then I couldn't get him. I couldn't find him. So I put a little something on my website with a little clock. Uh, a year had gone by, and I finally decided to go and try, uh, try and track him down. And so I decided to do a documentary about my trying to track Michael Moore down to have an interview, and I finally did. I, I did an ambush interview with Michael Moore in Santa Monica. I was able to ask him three questions, and I asked him, how often do Americans use guns? to defend themselves. He wouldn't answer. Mr. Moore, you know this, uh, this kid? His name is Kyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father, Ron, used a firearm to defend him because someone was trying to break into the home. Mm-hmm. This happens hundreds of thousands of times a year, wondering whether or not she might owe Mr. Uh, Heston an apology. You know, you know actually what Heston, happens Heston is trying to defend hundreds of thousands of kids who are in jeopardy every day because there's hundreds of thousands of guns in people's homes. Michael, we're and my, my question what, is how many people a year do you think are alive? Who are you? Larry Elder. How many people do you think are alive in America because uh, family or I think loved ones? I think you're in more danger. I think you're in more danger by having a gun in the house than not in the house. Okay. The question though is, how many people do you think are alive? Do you have a gun every in your year? house? How many people do you think are alive? Do you have a gun year? in your house? Want to answer my question? Uh, he said we have too many guns in the country. I said that wasn't the question, and he refused to, to have a dialogue with me about that. That's Larry Elder speaking about his film Michael and Me about Michael Moore. We'll return to host Dr. Alan Campbell's conversation with filmmaker Debbie Melnick after this break. This is Watching America on WHRV. This is Watching America. Host Dr. Alan Campbell continues his conversation with filmmaker Debbie Melnick. 
co-director and producer of the documentary Manufacturing Dissent, Uncovering Michael Moore. Key thing in your motion picture is that you uh, address the issue of of out-and-out fabrications, uh, playing with information, playing with locations, playing with actually what happened in the timeline. For instance, you have uh, in your film uh, some young people who are very much at one time enamored and wanted to do a little production based on Michael Moore's films, and they find an inconsistency with some information that's in the film. In particular, there's a young girl that calls him out on the fact that he has, well, now the term is invoked all the time, fake news. He alleges in the documentary, his documentary, Roger and Me, that Nightline was going to do a city talk uh, with various persons and that the live cam truck got stolen by somebody nefarious who had some association with General Motors and that Ted Koppel, as a result, couldn't do the show. It turns out your documentary reveals about Michael Moore's documentary that that never happened and that the he actually hires somebody to pretend to be the news anchor doing a, a live shot about, ironically, the live truck being stolen. How did you discover that? Um, we talked to this woman, uh, Elizabeth Bourgeois, who was doing this play uh, about Michael Moore in Flint. Um, and then we talked to the ABC um, uh, producer at the time in Flint, and they told us that none of that was true. While researching the script, the director discovers several startling fabrications in the film Roger and Me. He talks about um, a town hall meeting that's supposed to take place in Flint, in downtown Flint, where um, Ted Koppel and Nightline are going to come and cover this town hall meeting. When Ted Koppel announced he would interview city officials live in front of City Hall on Nightline. And then he goes on to show a news report where a reporter explains that that broadcast with Ted Koppel is not going to happen because the broadcast truck has been stolen by an unemployed auto worker. Apparently, though, just moments before the broadcast, someone got in the satellite truck and drove it off, cables and all. So now Nightline has had to cancel their segment from the city of Flint, and police are looking for a suspect. And the fact is that, that that's all actually completely fictional. He made up the news broadcast. He made up the theft. It never happened. He made up the actual town hall meeting. So he actually had to go to the expense of hiring an actress, recreating the entire thing. How could he possibly not think that that eventually would be divulged and and proven to be invalid? Well, I think back then, you've got to remember, you know, you didn't have Google and and, uh, all this information wasn't at our fingertips. So I think back then you could do a lot of that without being discovered. Originally, his documentary was going to be entitled The Dance Band on the Titanic, and he worked with attorney Jim uh, Musselman. And in your documentary is this amazing sequence where Jim Musselman says, uh, he showed me rushes, he showed me rough material that we were, we were editing. And it was evident that he was trying to insist on the idea or introduce the idea that Roger Smith was avoiding him and wouldn't allow himself to be seen with uh, Michael Moore. The fact is... Nothing like that occurred. He actually had access to uh, Roger Smith, the the director of General Motors, twice and interviewed him. But he was trying to avoid this storyline. And then he discloses to Jim Musselman that, hey, you know, I want to go on this route. Otherwise, we don't have a movie. What was his relationship ultimately like with Jim Musselman? I mean, Jim Musselman, we don't hear an awful lot about now. Um, Wasn't he terrified that Musselman would come out and expose him on a grand scale? Uh, yes, and 
Jim was a very good friend of his. In fact, he helped get him a job with Ralph Nader after he left Mother Jones. He was putting together news reports, like flyers, for Ralph Nader at the time. So, you know, he hired him to help with Ralph Nader's uh, uh, information flyers, and they had been good friends for a long time. Um, When this happened, Jim Musselman was very, very, very hurt, very surprised that Michael Moore had turned his back on the union of Flint because he actually thought with this film that Michael Moore was supposed to do on the Flint unions, basically taking back the power from um, General Motors, that they were going to survive and, and there weren't going to be all these cutbacks. And when he found out that the film was actually about Michael Moore and not the unions, yeah, he was hurt and he was a bit terrified. Um, There was a point where he tells me that Jim Musselman says that Michael Moore calls him in the middle of the night and says, don't tell anyone that I talked to him. Don't tell anyone uh, that that won't be good for me. Um, And uh, Jim said he, he felt uneasy about all of this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and we have the privilege of speaking with Debbie Melnick. She is the director, along with Rick Kane, of the film Manufacturing Descent, which was a thorough examination of the sometimes less than truthful approaches that Michael Moore takes in relation to his documentaries. Now, things heated up for you in the in the making of this motion picture. You're following Michael Moore essentially across America and various states and locations. He has a 20-city tour that he's doing. And at Wayne State University in Detroit, you simply want to plug into the main board to get good audio. And you start to sense that there are those who are vehemently trying to oppose you, even to the point of allowing other media outlets, uh, carte blanche, to be able to plug into the soundboard, but you're excluded. How did that happen? They just said, you can't plug in. I guess they realized we had been following them around, and they realized who we were, and we were doing a documentary on Michael Moore. And at this point, they decided to get a bit more heavy-handed, and they said, no, you can't plug into the soundboard. Um, And that was the first time it became extremely heavy-handed, and we thought, aha, these people... And that's when I also started to realize, yeah, he's not going to do the interview. I mean, they're stopping us from plugging in. That's censorship. So, And it was surprising because I kind of thought, really, Michael Moore, you're for freedom of speech. Um, you've had to go through documentaries like this with George Bush, with Roger Smith, and now you're stopping us from plugging into the soundboard. It was, uh, it was a bit shocking, I have to say. Well, with Bowling for Columbine, even those who um, are inclined to to like Michael Moore, there were some even within that group who found it distasteful with his encounter with Charlton Heston. He goes up to Charlton Heston's estate. He doesn't have a bona fide interview scheduled. He just walks up to the voice box and says, I'm a member of the NRA, lifetime member of the NRA. I want to do um, an interview with you. Is that possible? And very graciously, I think the next day, Heston allows him to come back. Uh, And then he accuses Heston of actually having been in Flint only three weeks after uh, a woman had been killed representing the NRA. And as your documentary points out, that's not true. The dateline's wrong. It was months later that he came by. And um, 
Moreover, he just basically uh, just drills a series of questions into a man who does not completely have all his faculties at the end of his reign as an actor. Uh, he's certainly facing his senior years with the horizon in front of him. And uh, Michael Moore has no qualms whatsoever about embarrassing this man or saying things that are flatly untrue. And as a filmmaker myself, the thing I noted is that when you look at that sequence, and I'm sure it occurred to you, that was a single camera shoot. That was not a multi-camera shoot. And then he holds up a, uh, a, a picture of the girl and he says, please don't leave. This is the girl. This is the girl who was killed. Please don't leave as after, you know, uh, honoring Michael Moore for at least it looked like 40 minute interview or something. He walks away and then you get the reverse angle. That reverse angle had to be staged because it was a single camera operation. Did you find some element of disgust uh, when viewing that sequence? Yeah, I was quite disgusted when I saw that sequence. I, I cringed. Um, yeah. And because I actually saw this before we even were thinking about doing a film about Michael Moore. And at the time, I kind of thought, why are you doing that? That's that's just not right. Uh, and I didn't realize until we started to do our film that uh, – that the timeline was all wrong and that um, Charlton Heston actually wasn't in Flint saying, you know, take this, uh, what is it he said about remove this, don't remove the guns from my cold dead hands, something like that. Um, so, yeah, I, it was very cringeworthy and there was, it wasn't necessary, quite frankly. Right. In 2002, Michael Moore's film Bowling for Columbine catapults him to stardom. From my cold dead hands. You can't defend Charlton Heston from Michael dead hands. At the same time, going into his house, as he did in Bowling for Columbine, wheedling his way in. Uh, we're making a documentary about, um, uh, you know, the whole gun issue, and I'm a member of the NRA. And then to have the man, you know, start calling him uh, names in the middle of the interview, accusing him of doing something which he had not done, which was to go to Flint three weeks after the death of the six-year-old girl and uh, give a speech for the NRA. He did not do that, and that's just dishonest. Did you feel it was being at all insensitive to the fact that this community had just gone through the Actually, shooting? I wasn't aware of that at the time we came. You didn't know at the time when you were there that this, no. this killing had happened. Had you known, would you have not? Would come? I have canceled the... Uh, yeah. I don't... It's... What he does in the end with Charlton Heston, it's not sad, it's mean. It's just, it just the guy, was losing his mind at that point. It just it just doesn't really make any sense. This is her. Mr. Head, please don't leave. Mr. Heston, please take a look at her. This is the girl. And that's one of the things I think about Michael Moore. I think, uh, you know, he has a, he's a gift for humor. He has a gift uh, as a personality. He's uh, essentially likable. I mean, he'd have to be, or he couldn't manage even with, with the shenanigans that he's up to sometimes. He couldn't get to the level that he's at without being a person that most people would feel warmly to or gravitate to. So he has a natural magnetism. Unfortunately, uh, he eclipses it with not staying in the bounds of truth. And uh, it, it's it's very sad to behold. Now, on the way to Cannes, the film festival, it finally occurs to you. You get information that he's dodging you again. And so then you finally match up with his uh, public um, publicist, Terry Hardesty. And this is during the slacking uh, uprising tour, uh, slacker uprising tour of the United States. And out comes Roseanne Barr uh, in a conference. And in front of Roseanne, you ask Michael Moore again. You're sitting in the front row. Can you please have a have an opportunity for an interview. He dodges you yet again. 
And then it gets worse. Uh, you go to an event. Uh, it looks like this from your film, at least 50,000 people in an arena listening to him. And his sister, Michael Moore's sister, comes up, pushes your photographer, sends the camera to the ground, and then moreover demands your IDs and then says she's not going to give them back and wants you basically removed from the arena. I mean, was this such a moment of disbelief that you, you couldn't believe it was happening? I couldn't believe it was happening. And actually, it was the exact, it was at Kent State University. And it was at the same, uh, it was right after the press conference where I asked him that question if he would do the interview. Um, and right after that, and, you know, he said, well, no, no, I hope you understand. I don't have time. And then I thought, okay, that's that. We went into the audience, and I had no idea that what was going to occur right after that, but they came looking for us in the audience and then removed us. Uh, uh, the publicist came and his sister came. Suddenly, Michael's publicist and security arrive and kick me and my cameraman out. I guess he was more aware of our film than he let on earlier. Anne Moore, Michael's sister, forces our camera to the ground, but it isn't turned off. She starts to interrogate me. There is no filming that is allowed here without permission because there's no commercial ventures. We allow people to film who are part of the affiliates and part of free TV, but not for commercial purposes such as yours. But news media such as ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN are all more commercial oriented than, than documentaries. I know who your supervisor is. I'll call right now. So Thank you. She demanded our IDs, and I, at that point, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I needed uh, my passport and driver's license to get across the border. And I said, no, I'm not going to give you was, our IDs. It's incredibly audacious that she would even think she could demand it. I mean, it just exactly. blows my mind. Just I know. I couldn't believe it. I was just shocked. I, I was just And angered. I have to say, I was shocked and angered. And I, I said, no, you. you're not getting that. Yeah. I said, how dare you? I, I was furious about that. Later on, you see him again. And um, certainly by this time, he, he's well on, uh, very much aware that you, you have completely not going to be thrown off and that you want to speak to him. And it comes up the issue of whether or not he has been involved, uh, his investments at least, with uh, spurious investments in Honeywell Corporation, uh, Halliburton, defense contractors, uh, and you ask him about this. And again, he does this song and dance to try and avoid you. What happened on that occasion? Uh, yeah, he, he said, oh, it wasn't me. I didn't invest in those. I don't know what my... Um, accountant or my finance, my business people invest in. So you can't really blame me for that. And I thought, well, someone who's aware of what all these companies do, you should also be aware of how bad it looks when you're invested in, in companies like Pfizer and Honeywell. Um, and then he said, oh, do you have any other questions? And I said, well, actually, yes. And then he <laughs> ran away. And I was following him and he just ran into the elevator. Is that after the hug? Because he leans over and he hugs you at one point. Yes, it was. Okay, so, <laughs> all right. so he does a quick hug for the camera, right? Yeah. And, you, uh -huh. you, and, and as a good Canadian, you have a, a natural reserve. You know, you've got that British <laughs> element in you. And, and so you, you feel a bit uh, offhand, but you think, okay, then I'll, I'll, I'll oblige to a bit. And you, you very uh, 
not exactly easily place your, your head on his shoulder for a moment, <laughs> hoping that perhaps it might warm him up for a bit more of a of dialogue. And then he just darts into a, into a elevator? Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. He just kind of ran away. <laughs> Right, now, it was, was weird. now, was that post you being uh, uh, jettisoned from the arena, or is that a different time span itself? Uh, yes, that was post that. that so was there was no apology. There was not, I heard no. what happened. I'm so sorry. I no. really owe you uh, an interview. Let me make this up. There was nothing like that, right? No, nothing like that at all. Uh, not, e- <laughs> not even an offer of a glass of Perrier or something. Okay. No, I, I, th- I think he knew... By then, uh, he thought, oh, well, she's still doing it. And I think, I don't even know whether he remembered. I, yeah, he must have remembered us because he said, oh, you again, the Canadian. So he obviously did remember. But let me uh, make it perfectly clear that even though it was his sister and his publicist who ejected us from the Kent State uh, University Michael Moore slacker speech, he is the one who tells them what to do. So he was totally aware of what was going on. Now, at the Waldorf Historia in New York, uh, Michael Moore talked to Roger Smith, and uh, that encounter was actually published in Premier Magazine in 1990, and yet nobody called foul and recognized what was happening. How do you account for that? Again, I think it's because there was no Google or, or, or search. I, I, people didn't care about stuff like that. They didn't care about seeing. And also, I don't think they believe people lied. So here is Premier Magazine doing something. And yes, it's an entertainment magazine, but I guess they didn't take it seriously. You know, they're thinking, okay, it's like Entertainment Weekly or something. So uh, <laughs> it's, it just wasn't on uh, people's wavelengths back then. You are listening to Watching America. We'll be right back. This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. We are speaking for those who are joining us right now with Debbie Melnick, who was the director, along with Rick Kane, of Manufacturing Dissent, an examination of Michael Moore, a documentary that they made. The most disturbing revelation was that he was willing to fake speaking before the General Motors stockholders meeting uh, and fake that his mic was cut off. Now, by this point, already, Roger Smith has spoken with him twice and, and, and been willing to chat with him um, one time extensively and now he is trying to make out in the documentary that 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 roger smith had categorically denied any access to him which is not true and then he goes so far at the end of roger and me the film to shoot in an empty theater with bad lighting on him supposedly his plea to be able to address roger smith with the mic being cut off and you know this because those involved with the film told you. The cameraman had told me, yeah. And, and James Musselman, too, yeah. You were asking for an interview in an audience with Roger, and you were turned down every time? Every time. Uh, we, we wrote, we phoned, we faxed, uh, we tried every means available, but we couldn't get him to respond. In 1990, Premier Magazine discovered that Michael got two interviews with Roger Smith. 
no one took much notice. We went to the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Michael and I got in and got access to Roger Smith. You know, he sat there and answered questions for about 10 or 15 minutes. And it was some great footage because it was, it was Smith answering questions one-on-one -on -one from Michael. The shareholders meeting, which he actually yes. puts in Roger and me, they cut off his mic or something. Mr. Chairman, I suggest on Monday if there's an announcement about Mr. McDonald resigning that you join in and resign with him. Michael then, for the movie, gets into an old theater and cuts and pastes it so it makes it look like Michael was cut off. His microphone wasn't cut off. He was not cut off. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I know we keep going back to the fact that there was no internet at the time, there was no other outlets, but even then, somebody doggedly, uh, had they known, could have called him out on it. And what I don't understand is how he could have such a comfort level of living with lies, untruths. I think, beca I don't know, I think it's because he got away with it for a very long time. Um, and... He had never been called out, and the people, and, and he was, the people who were working with him all wanted the same things. Everyone was on the left, and they all wanted to make sure that, you know, what he was saying and the essence of what he was saying is true. However, people didn't want to discuss necessarily how he got there. So it was the left supporting the left. All right. Now, Debbie, um, you, you would self-describe as, as a person still on the left, I presume, correct? Yeah, I actually think I'm more left than, <laughs> than Michael Moore. <laughs> okay. And uh, when you see somebody who is playing with facts, at the very least, the nicest thing we can say, playing with facts, although we have to acknowledge he's recreated non-realities completely, as, you, as you've drawn attention to. As a person on the left, how does that make you feel? Do you, do, are you angry that your positions are possibly undermined by the, the antics of a fake. Uh, yeah, I'm very angry when Michael Moore fakes things um, to get his point across because it does undermine, um, it undermines uh, the left. And as, Mike, as James Musselman says in the films, you know, how can you fake things? This is what the CIA does. <laughs> this is what the, the right-wing governments do. So if you're no better than them, how can you say you're going to help help? You're not going to help if you're, if you're using the same antics and the tactics as, as the far right. So it doesn't help anyone. Were you ever scared in the making of this film? Was there ever a time that you, you had your heart beating fast and you thought, I'm scared? My heart was beating quite fast when we were being ejected from Kent State because there were police involved. Um, but I were charges pressed? No, 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 okay. charges weren't pressed. But I wasn't afraid for my life or anything like that. No. Now, once the film was released, were you fearful? Um, I wasn't fearful by that time. You know, the Internet is full-blown, and you get a lot of people emailing and telling you what a horrible person you are by doing this film and, and that you're a right-wing Republican and all of this sort of stuff, um, you know, that you're doing the work of, of the Republicans. So you're not really afraid. But so you, you were it, considered to be aiding the enemy. Yes, yeah. So it becomes, it becomes very uncomfortable to be put in that position. Now, did he ever reach out afterwards? Did you ever hear what he thought of the film 
I mean, well, we know, we presume we know what he thought of the film, but did, did you ever hear any feedback, even vicariously through other sources? Um, through other sources, I believe AP had talked to them, and he said, no, he hadn't seen the film. He didn't really know about the film, so he denied knowing about the film. Completely disingenuous, considering the publicity it got. Um, okay, yeah. now, have you followed his other films? Have you seen Sicko? Uh, we actually saw Sicko because it came out right around the time our film came out. However, um, it, uh, yeah, I, I did see that film. <laughs> and what do you think about the allegations that he only shot, for instance, at hospitals where dignitaries would have access in, uh, in Havana? Yeah, I, I have been to Havana, and yes, I believe he did not shoot... He he did shoot at at uh, in hospitals only dignitaries had access to. I mean, I ended up somehow I don't know hurt myself and I just went into a regular pharmacy in Havana and I couldn't even get bandages. So <laughs> yeah, it was it, it's nothing like how he portrayed it to be. Listen, I I love Cuba. I, you know, the Canadians get to go there, no problem. We've been going there for years, but it's yeah, it's it's a problem getting good health care there. Well, originally Fahrenheit 9-11 came out, and then he inverted the numbers, most recently with Fahrenheit 11-9, and that did not receive very favorable reviews, even from devotees. What did you think of it if you saw it? Um, I actually just saw it recently, <laughs> and um, I, I didn't like it. I mean, it, it was a typical Michael Moore film. I thought it was very unfocused, Um just a mishmash of topics, um, you know, all of his favorite peccadillos, uh, you know, the guns. He did that with, bo I actually think his best film is Bowling for Columbine. Um, and uh, what was, you know, talking about Flint uh, because of the water problems in Flint. Um, but he was up to, you know, he still uses propagand propagandistic techniques. He uses fear. Uh, you know, he uses that clip with, Hitler speaking, um, only using Trump's voice as Hitler. I mean, these are, it was very simplistic. Uh, it, it's, it, I didn't think it was very good. Now, the thing that I, I'm not aware of, although I teach documentary filmmaking every few semesters, is there doesn't seem to be, in my estimation, a sufficient outcry of foul from other documentarians. Do you think the standards, the ethics associating with, associated with contemporary documentary filmmaking have become more lax as a result of the likes of Michael Moore? Yes, and I also think, uh, yeah, there's a lot more recreations because that's what people do now. And it's uh, documentary filmmaking has changed, and I think Michael Moore has aided uh, that direction, uh, not necessarily demise, but to make it more entertaining people do things which aren't necessarily true. So, um, yeah. It, it, those aren't my type of films anyways. I mean, I did like Roger and me and, and Michael Moore, but, you know, I prefer the Eugene Jarecki's, the Alex Gibney's, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Morgan Neville, um, mm -hmm. Won't You Be My Neighbor, mm -hmm. fabulous film, should have actually won the award this year, for, should have been nominated even, um, those sort of films. So... Now, you're on the West Coast. Are you in Los Angeles? Yes. Okay. So um, I am very interested, and I'm sure the audience is too, is what is Debbie Melnick doing today? 
Well, um, I'm actually working on a documentary about uh, a Texan Los Angeles artist who was a uh, surgeon, and he's decided to become an artist, gave all that up to become an artist. So um, I'm just starting this project, and we're going to see where it goes. He's had showings in New York and uh, uh, Truman Marquez, and we're, we'll see what happens with it. <laughs> Of all of your work that you've done, what are you the most proud of? I'm the most proud of Manufacturing Descent. I have to say, I saw it the other day to try to remember everything that was in it, and I still really enjoy it. I, I really, I, I liked the film. I thought it was solid, and, and I'm also glad. I do believe that after this film, as you said earlier uh, in the interview, people are more skeptical of Michael Moore. And if anything, that's all I wanted to do was say, Look closely at who your heroes are and don't necessarily take everything uh, as fact. Really examine what's going on. Be a bit more critical in, in what we see on TV and in films. And I think if our film helped to lead to that, I'm, I'm proud of that fact. So, in essence, Debbie Melnick, your position would be, I'm left, I'm proud to be left, I do not apologize for being left, but don't believe everyone who claims to be left. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Debbie, for being with us. For those just joining and have been listening for a while, this is a program called Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and I have had the sincere pleasure of speaking with Debbie Melnick, a filmmaker and documentarian, who made the film Manufacturing Descent, which was an expose of a sort and an examination of Michael Moore and his sometimes less than ethical approach to documentary filmmaking. It has been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Alan. Take care. Watching America is made possible by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Todd Washburn, our producer extraordinaire, Paul Bebo, senior producer and recording genius, editor, Gina Gamboni, executive producer, Chuck Dowd, Chief of Content Heather Mazzoni and CEO Bert Schmidt. I am watching America's creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. Next week on Watching America, we'll be talking about crying, and we'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts about crying, your experiences with crying? Do you remember the last time you cried? Do we cry enough? Too much? Let us know by emailing us at whrvwatching at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 757-354-1231. That's 757-354-1231. We appreciate your thoughts.